We want to say welcome to everybody who's watching this message by video, whether on our uh, local television station or online or around the world. We're so glad to have you join us. This is the weekend at Waters Church. My name is Tim. So glad to have you. Everybody here, let's welcome them in and tell them we're happy to have them with us as well. Take out your bulletins in our house here, in-house. If you're online, you can uh, click on the tab called Notes to the right of me because in our bulletins here in-house, we have the note page. We'd love you to take that out, fill in the blank. There should be a pen nearby for you to fill in the blanks as we go through this message. Very important topic that we're in in this series for the Advent season, the season of Christmas, Prince of Peace. And so last week we talked about the peace that we have with God, and today we're talking about relational peace. And the title of the message is The Keys to Relational Peace. The Keys to Relational Peace. And the passage of scripture that we're going to go to is 2 Corinthians chapter 6. So if you've got a Bible, would you go there with me as well? And if you've got a smartphone Bible, that's fine too. You can click to 2 Corinthians chapter 6 or turn, if you're old-fashioned like me, you can turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. Uh, We're going to get right to the text today. So why don't you stand with me as we read from 2 Corinthians chapter 6. The Apostle Paul writing to a church in the first century world in the city of Corinth And here's what he says, working together, verse 1, with him, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Now is the day of salvation. Paul says, we put no obstacle in anyone's way so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way by great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger, by purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God, with weapons of righteousness on the right hand and for the left hand, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as impostors and yet are true, as unknown and yet we are well known, as dying and yet we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything. We have spoken freely to you, Corinthians. Our heart, check these words out, our heart is wide open. Somebody say wide open. You are not restricted by us, but you are restricted in your own affections. And what he means by that is toward us. In return, I speak to you, children, as to children, Widen your hearts also. Do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? What fellowship has light with darkness? What accord has Christ with Baal? Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? What agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. As God said, I will make my dwelling among them and walk among them and I will be their God and they shall be my people. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, for these next few moments, I ask that your spirit will guide the conversation today. And I ask that whatever happens in these next few moments, we will have ears to hear what the Holy Spirit wants to say to your church. For every heart that has been weighed down by a relationship that has stressed them out, 
and worn them out. I pray for the tools of heaven to be empowered through the Holy Spirit in their lives so that they may live at peace. And Father, as we pray every time we're together, we pray it again. Help us to see Jesus. And him only, in his mighty name we pray. And everybody said, amen. Amen. God bless you. Have a seat. So, relational peace today. Very important topic for God's people. You might not be aware of this, but it's true. I want you to write it down in the notes. My relationships are the most important asset of my life. You can have a lot of money and still be lonely and miserable. You can have a big house and it can be completely empty and no one to actually bring you any joy. I don't know about you, but I don't really feel like I'm alive until I'm around people. I love community. That's why I love being a pastor of a big church like this. It's a big, beautiful community of diverse kinds of people where we feel the presence of God as we gather together as the church. Relationships are your more, most important asset in your life. Here's how I know, because I've been to the deathbed of many people, and when people are at the end of their lives, when they are looking at the next life to come, and death is knocking at their door, they do not ask for their bank statements. They do not ask for a picture of their homes and cars. They want their loved ones around them. At the most important moments, you need people around you. When you get married, you want people around you. When you have a child, you invite people come and see the baby. When, when, when you move, you need people to help you move. And then we throw housewarming parties for we need people to come around us. But here's what I think is the problem with many of us concerning relational peace. We're not intentional about the relationships we keep. So this is the second thing. It's kind of like the foundational points I'm building here. Without intentionality, my relationships can cause stress to my life. If you're not intentional about the relationships that you keep, if you're not intentional about the friends that you keep, they could stress you out and wear you out. In 1938, Harvard University started a long-term longitudinal study of 750 men from all walks of life. 750 men from both sides of the track. Higher strata of economic class, lowest strata of economic class. And they determined to study these guys' life for the rest of their lives. They studied them for 70 years, 75 years, a long-term study, to find out what makes men happy. And they found out after 75 years that the most well-adjusted, the happiest, the strongest, the most joyful men in that study were not always the men with the most money. And we're not always the men with the most accomplishments or successes. And we're not always the men who could pride themselves on having positions of power. Guess who it was? It was the men with the most friends, close-knit friends. And we've got to be intentional because our friendships will help our lives or they will stress our lives. They will either add to us or they will suck the life out of us. And this is so important for you because your health depends on it. Another long-term study, not a 75-year study, but a 12-year study came out recently. 
And this study actually uh, surveyed 10,000 people for 12 years, 10,000 people for 12 years, to see if they could identify the link between a toxic relationship and physical health. And they found out that if you have one toxic, one toxic relationship, somebody that comes in and just totally takes out of your life, somebody that sucks the joy out, somebody that is always asking for everything out of you, and if you commit to that relationship and you maintain that relationship, it's as bad as having a serious heart condition. It can lead to strokes and heart attacks. One toxic relationship. Are you being intentional with who you have chosen to do life with? Well, this is why we're in 2 Corinthians, because this was the Corinthian problem. The Corinthian problem. This, this little church in ancient Corinth in Greece. And Paul goes to this city. No one has ever heard the gospel. He brings the gospel. He tells them about Jesus. And a good number of people from that city become Christians. And Paul stays 18 months there. But you see, Paul is a missionary. So he starts churches. He would plant churches. And he would put elders in charge of the church, and then he would move on to the next church, next, next city, and start another church. And so he plants the church in Corinth, stays 18 months, puts some elders in charge, and leaves for another city. But then he finds out a couple of years later from a guy named Titus, one of his partners in ministry, that the church in Corinth wasn't doing well. And the church in Corinth had division and they had sectarianism. They had us versus them-ism in the church. We're not talking about the city. We're talking about the church in the city. There was sexual immorality rampant throughout the church in Corinth. People were suing each other in the church in Corinth. That's pretty bad when Christians sue each other over property. We are brothers and sisters. Amen? And so the church in Corinth had all these problems. Why? Because some guys came in, some self-proclaimed, they called themselves super apostles, some false teachers, some guys who didn't have the best interest of the church in mind, and they wooed the people away from their firm foundation in Christ Jesus. They started to follow names. They, they, follow, they started to divide over what name they followed, who they followed. And so Paul has to write some letters to the church in Corinth because this church was seriously messed up. And he actually writes four letters to the church in Corinth over the course of his ministry. Two of the letters end up in our Bibles. I'd like to say this about the church in Corinth. It was Paul's most demanding church. I say that because... The Bible, the New Testament, one third of the New Testament is Paul's, are, is made up of Paul's letters to the New Testament, to the first century churches in the cities of the ancient world. Um, churches in Galatia, churches in Colossae, churches in Philippi. Okay. And he has to write not one, but two letters to the church in Corinth. Why? Because they're seriously messed up. And they take all of Paul's energy. In fact, 29 chapters of Paul's writings in the Bible are devoted to the church in Corinth. He writes four chapters to Philippi. He writes four chapters to Colossae. He writes six chapters to Ephesus. He writes about eight chapters to Thessalonica. He has to write 29 chapters to Corinth. Corinth required quadruple effort. Do you have anybody in your life that requires quadruple effort? If you got somebody that just, you know, they just take it out, they just take it out of you. Could you just do, do me a favor? Just raise your hand. You got somebody like that in your life? Okay, good. I'm talking to some people. Now, if you are sitting next to them, could you just raise it a little higher? 
Okay, that was, you, some of you were way too eager to do that in that moment. So I know I'm talking to some people. You know, Rick Warren calls these people in our lives extra grace required, EGRs. And they just suck the life out of you. Do you ever find yourself just wishing they would move away or die? Don't look at me so sanctimoniously. You ever wish they just kind of like fall out of your life? Like, you know, Jesus, I can't handle them. Take them home. See how you like them. Not if they're not Christian, but if they're Christian, why not? They're going to a better place. Amen. You know? I heard a story about an old couple, an elderly couple. They weren't old when they started living together, but they got old, and their names were Esther and Morris, and Morris and Esther would go to the county fair every single year, and they would see a helicopter ride, $50 helicopter ride. And Morris would turn to Esther and say, Honey, I want to go on the helicopter ride. And she would say, Morris, that helicopter ride is $50, and $50 is $50. So Morris didn't get on the helicopter ride. Every single year, they'd have the same conversation. Honey, I want to go on the helicopter ride. Morris, that helicopter ride is $50. And $50 is $50. This went on for years. Finally, at the age of 85, Morris puts his foot down. If I don't get on that helicopter ride this year, I may not live to see another chance. I'm going on that helicopter ride. And Esther, the familiar refrain, oh, Morris, that helicopter ride is $50. And $50 is $50. The helicopter pilot had been hearing this conversation for several years, and he had had it. So he said, I'll make a deal with you. I will take you up free of charge, and I won't charge you so long as neither of you say a stinking word. <laughs> well, Esther couldn't argue with that, so they got in the helicopter, and he says, if you say a word, if you say a word, it's $50. So the helicopter guy, pilot, takes him up, and he figures, I'm going to get $50 out of these people. So he does some seriously crazy maneuvers. And he's swinging around and he's doing loop-de-loops and he's doing all kinds of things that helicopter pilots do or whatever they're doing. And all crazy kind of stuff. Not a peep from Esther and Morris. He lands the helicopter. He turns to Morris and he says, Morris, I got to hand it to you. I did everything to get you guys to say something, but you stayed quiet. I'm amazed. And Morris said, well, I was going to say something when Esther fell out of the helicopter. <laughs> but as she always said... $50 is $50. You ever have a Morris moment? Come on, somebody. 29 chapters of the New Testament are written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Corinth because the church in Corinth sucked the life out of this guy. And they let these people, here's the problem, they let these people come in and take them away and upset their peace and rock their world, and they became a seriously problematic church. Okay, so here's the foundational point I want you to write down in your notes, because this is so important. We talked about the gospel bringing peace with us and God last week, but here's the foundational point. The gospel doesn't just bring us peace with God. It informs our peace with others. So I want you to think about it. The gospel is rooted in the cross, right? Jesus died for our sins. And the cross, if you look at the cross, it has two axes. It has the vertical axes, whereby God has pronounced through the blood of Jesus Christ that there is now peace vertically for humanity with the Father in heaven. 
And that is done once and for all. You can't add to it. You can't take it away. It is finished. It is done. There is peace with God available to all who place their faith in the finished work of Jesus. But there is the horizontal axis of the, axis of the cross, which means that the work of Jesus wasn't just to bring you peace with God, but to stretch out to your relationships so that you would live at peace with others. And the problem that we have is that we let people come into our lives and upset our peace. So Paul writes to the Corinthians. He says these words. Look, look at verse 1 again. We, working together with him, we appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. This is a crazy idea here. Paul's saying, don't take God's grace in vain. A lot of people think that means, oh, oh, don't, to take God's grace in vain means that you believe in Jesus and then you live as you want. And listen, if that's you, you're not a Christian, just letting you know. <laughs> but that's not what he's talking about. That's not what he's talking about. He's saying, look, the word in vain means without result. And then he starts talking about relationship with him, the Apostle Paul, who brought them to Christ and brought them into the faith. And so he says contextually that to take God's grace in vain means that you don't let the gospel have an effect in your personal relationships. Let the gospel guide you relationally. Let the gospel protect you relationally. And so I got three keys to relational peace from the Apostle Paul to the Corinthians, but also applicable to us. Key number one, Paul tells them, open your heart to the right people. Open your heart to the right people. He says, open, their, open your hearts to us several times in this passage. And, and he's kind of like backing up why the Corinthians should stop listening to these self-proclaimed super apostles with bad intentions and get back to listening to him to maintain the right relationships with the right people, intentionality here. And so he kind of like backs up why they should be listening. Look at what he says in verse 3. We live in such a way that no one will stumble because of us. And no one will find fault with our ministry. In other words, look at our record, Corinthians. Look at how we've lived. You can trust us. Verse 2 of chapter 7, please open your hearts to us. We have wronged no one. We have led no one astray. We have taken advantage of no one. You've got to look for the right people, Paul says. I am one of those people. You can trust me. And you say, okay, Pastor Tim, I get it. Have the right people in your life. But who are the right people? Okay, good news. Paul unpacks for the Corinthians why he is right for them to give us an image of what the right people look like. Okay, so verse 4, he says, In everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. You need true ministers around you. And I'm not just talking about pastors and church leaders, official church leaders. I'm talking about the ministers. If you're a Christian, you are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You don't have to preach. You don't have to sing. But you are a minister of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We all tracking with that? We all okay with that? If you're a minister, say amen. amen. 
Amen. Okay, good. You're with me. So he says, look, we do these things. Everything we do, we show that we are true ministers of God. And then I'm going to unpack for you from, from Paul's own testimony, three right people traits. Okay, right people trait number one, people who endure trouble well. In your relationships, you want to be around people who know how to handle trouble and tr handle trouble well. There are some people who don't handle trouble at all. Yeah, you're snickering because you probably know a few. And I'm talking about the people that as soon as life doesn't go their way in the slightest, they fly off the handle. They just lose it over silly, momentary problems. Watch out for these people. You gotta buy, you gotta have people around you who know how to gird themselves up under the stress, under the trouble of life, under the difficulties, because life will bring you trouble. How are you gonna respond to it? And the people around you, how do they respond to it? Look at what Paul says. He says, here's how we handle ourselves. We patiently, verse four, endure troubles. We patiently, you got somebody that just starts swearing their head off because of something small, watch out for those people. Seriously, don't sink your life into them. We endure trouble patiently, hardships, calamities of every kind. So people that know how to handle multiple kinds of difficulty. Beaten, he says, put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, gone without food. People who know how to gird themselves up and be strong in the midst of difficulty. This is who you want to go to bat with in your life. This is how you want to fight the good fight of faith. If you give yourself and your time to people who are constantly complaining, constantly talking about how terrible life is, how God has let them down. I really have very little patience for self-professed Christians who every little thing causes them to question if God is real? Like, really? You're going to let everything, you're going to let a flat tire question if God exists? I mean, that's a silly example. But you lost your job, now you're wondering if God loves you? Or, or you, you got some flack from a, a job performance review. You're gonna worry, you're gonna start flying out there and take your anger out on everybody around you. You gotta have some people who know how to go through the fire and stand strong. That's who Daniel had. He had Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these guys went through the flames. He had the right kind of friends. And I believe that the right kind of friends can empower the right kind of faith in your life. Here's what the song you says. This, you say, Pastor, this doesn't sound biblical. It sounds like I, should, I think I should be loving everybody. Wait, 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 wait. What does the psalmist say? Psalm 101, verse 6. I will search. Look at what he says. I will search for who? Oh, you got to say it like a meaning. Come on. Who? I will search for faithful people to be my companions. It's biblical. I'm not telling you something that's not biblical. Who are you giving your time? You only have so much time every day. You only have so many hours. And if you're going to give yourself to these life-sucking, these faith-denying, these God-questioning people, watch out because they'll make you just like them. Oh, I'm preaching now because you're so quiet. <laughs> See, that's, I've learned after 20 years of ministry that the quieter you get, the better I'm preaching. Because I'm just hitting everybody right here. Amen. Right people, treat, right people trait, they know how to go through trouble. If you're looking for a spouse, 
you can look for looks and you can look for brains and you can look for pedigree and you can look for, I don't know, uh, ancestry, whatever. Look for somebody who knows how to finish what they start. Look for somebody who holds down a job. <laughs> Ladies, I'm talking to you. Does he have a job? Does he bounce from job to job? That should just be like a red flag right there. This guy, this guy bounces off of every job that gets too difficult. Watch out for that. Because one day you're going to give him kids, and that's a serious job. And you don't want him bouncing. Hold these hold people in your life accountable to this kind of stuff because they will suck the life out of you. This is what Paul is saying to the Corinthians. He's saying, look, you guys, you guys fell for these super apostles. You guys fell for these self-proclaimed deceivers. And, and you just follow them. He said, wake up. Look at my track record. I have suffered for Christ. I have worked tirelessly for Christ. And I did that so that you could be strong in Christ. Don't fall for these people. Listen to the right person. Right person trait number two, people who respond to trouble with God's character. So again, flying off the handle and spouting off a bunch of swears and turning into a sailor. Watch out for that. What does Paul say? We prove ourselves by our purity. We respond to trouble with purity, our understanding, our patience, our kindness, the Holy Spirit. And he goes off on this long list. What's he, what's he unpacking here? He's unpacking the fruits of the Holy Spirit. People that respond with God's character to the difficulties of life, to the trials and troubles of life. You want to be around these kind of people. Trust me, the other kind of people will just wear you out. Right people trait number three, people, in, people who endure trouble with heavenly perspective. Okay, so Paul goes on a long diatribe, look at this text, of nine opposites. He says we go through honor and dishonor, slander, praise, treated as imposters, uh, and yet true, unknown, well-known, dying, live, punished, not killed, sorrowful, rejoicing. What is he talking about? What is this? He's like, this, is, this is what Paul's trying to say, that yes, as a Christian, we will experience sorrow. Yes, as a Christian, we will be treated wrongly and poorly. Yes, as a Christian, we will be dishonored by many people on this planet. But ultimately, we know that we have an eternal home in heaven. And the way God looks at us is totally different than the way the world looks at us. You want to be around people like that. You want to be around people who are secure in their relationship with the Father. And you know you're real secure in your relationship with the Father when you can have the challenging, difficult conversation with somebody and they may not like what you say. Did you hear what I just said? If you're always trying to, up, and listen, very important thing. If you're always trying to pee, appease people and please them and get them to like you, it might betray the reality of your heart is not secured in your relationship with the Father. 
And I said this last week a little bit. I want to say it again today and unpack it a little bit more for you. But this is why the gospel matters. This is why the gospel is not just believe in Jesus and go to heaven when you die. The gospel is the announcement that if you put your faith in Christ, the Father is pleased with you. The Father loves you. The Father holds you. The Father will never lose you. He will never cast you out. Nothing in all creation, Paul says, can separate me from the love of who? My Father in Christ Jesus. When I am secure in that, I can be what God wants me to be, whether or not people like it. Oh, I wish I was preaching to somebody who got a hold of this today. I can say, I can have the difficult conversation with my spouse because their love for me, as much as I want it, it doesn't ultimately define me. I can discipline my children and hold them to account for right behavior. Why? Because even if they scream at me, they hate me. I know that's pretty much temporary anyway, because I hated my parents when I was young, but it's temporary. And my father's love for me is stronger than their temporary hate for me. And I could be a good parent. Come on, somebody. I could be a good friend with someone when I can tell them the truth in love even if they reject it. This was Jesus' powerful testimony. He didn't need anybody's approval. He didn't need anybody to like him. And because of that, he could just say what needed to be said. People say this about me all the time, and it's a compliment, I think. I think. <laughs> but they say, man, you just say it. You're not afraid. You say, I've, and people have said, I've never heard pastors say, like, talk about the things that you talk about. A lot of pastors are too afraid. That's right. Do you know why? Because a lot of pastors are not secure in their love for their father. They're actually too afraid of what the church people say about them. Man, have mercy on me if I'm scared of what you people think. <laughs> you should like me. I haven't said, you have to like me. It's in the Bible. But if I'm worried about what you have to say, how will I ever be a witness to the people who need to know Jesus that apart from him, they are lost, dying, and going to hell? And I say it because it's true, because they can come to the Father through Jesus and go to heaven. The truth has to be said. People with a heavenly perspective know that the troubles of this life are temporary. People with a heavenly perspective know that though they die or lose here, Anything lost for Christ here, we gain up there. People with a heavenly perspective give generously because they know as they give, they are storing up treasures. Where? In heaven. Okay? Those are the people you want to look for in your life. Okay, key number two. We're back to the main points now. Guard my heart from the wrong people. Um, I know what you're thinking. I can almost read some of your minds because you're uncomfortable with this message. Right now, you're thinking. Doesn't sound very Christian. Some people are wrong, Pastor. That doesn't sound very Christian. I don't think that's right. Jesus told us to love everyone. And Jesus loved everyone. And Jesus was friendly with everyone. And Jesus was nice. No, he wasn't. People who think Jesus was nice prove to me 
they actually haven't studied anything about Jesus. Nice people don't get crucified. They don't. This Sunday school, reimagine, carrying the lamb on his shoulders version of Jesus with the white Swedish, with the blonde Swedish long hair, does not exist. You need to realize, first off, he was from the Middle East. He probably didn't have blonde hair, I'm just saying. Or white skin. All right, so chillax about your Americanized, sanitized version of Jesus. Jesus one time took a whip that he made. <laughs> I, you know, you think about the vision, the pictures of Jesus in your mind that you have. My favorite picture of Jesus is him over in the corner of the temple stringing together the whip. I'm going to beat these people. <laughs> I'm going to tell them we're going to get them right out of this temple. They are ticking me off today. He made the whip. And he drove the money changers out of the temple and he overturned their table and he set their doves free. I mean, this guy was not nice, but he was truth. And even Jesus walked away from some people. Even Jesus <laughs> walked away from some people. Okay, you need to hear that because some of you are gluttons for punishment. You never walk away. You never walk away from a fight. You're like a dog. I have a dog that barks at random strangers on the other side of the fence every morning. This is her, this is her habit. She goes, she whizzes, and then she goes to the fence. And she's, What's the, what are they doing to you? I don't know. Row, 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 row. That's like some people. Some people are like that. I'm going to argue with you. I'm going to argue with you. I'm going to argue with you. Like, walk away. And not everybody is worth having an argument with. Like Jesus, there was a time when Herod wanted to see Jesus. They said, hey, do you know Herod's coming to get you? He says, you go tell that fox that I do miracles today and tomorrow on the third day I reach my destination. Man, I love Jesus. Another time the disciples said, do you understand that what you just said upset the Pharisees? What did he say? Every tree that is not planted by my father will be uprooted and cast into the fire. Ouch! I mean, there was times that you, actually, even when Jesus picked his disciples, people don't understand this. He picked the ones he liked. Mark chapter 3. When he's picking his disciples, he says, he picks James, John, Andrew, Bartholomew. And it says, he gathered to them his 12, those whom, here's the direct quote, those whom he wanted. Which means there were some he didn't want. <laughs> I'm not talking about, did they have the opportunity to put their faith in him? I'm talking about, who did he want to do life with? He only had three years before the cross, surround me with some people that I can actually stand. So <laughs> what I'm saying to you, and I hope this releases some of you from the obligation to be somebody else's whipping boy. Well, it's the Christian thing to do to just tank it, to just tank it. Just, okay, just unload on me. Just vomit. Just vomit all over me emotionally. I, I'm a Christian. This is what I'm, no, you're not supposed to do that. 
At one time, Jesus said, don't cast your pearls before. He's not talking about pigs. He's talking about people. And he calls them pigs. <laughs> Think about it. Don't give to dogs what is sacred. These are the words of Jesus. Not nice. True, but not nice. And some of you, you need to put your guard up. You need to put your guard up because your guard is down. You're like an undefensed city, and everybody has just total access into your spirit, and you wonder why you're stressed out, you're angry, you got no money, you got no sense of purpose, and you're flying off the handle at those you should be caring about. So here's what Paul says. Verse 14, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. And then he goes on. What partnership is there between us and them? Light and darkness, Christ and Baal, the temple of God and idols. In other words, there's some people you should not be in relationship with. Now listen, um, very important point, side point, side note about this. Paul is not saying, listen very carefully here, Christians. Paul is not saying, avoid all heathens. We all, we all clear with that, right? That would be counterintuitive to being Christian. We are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We are to be out there sharing our faith, living our faith, loving those who do not love us, absolutely. But what he is talking about here is yoking up. That's the word you got to look at in that text. Do not be unequally, what? Yoked. A yoke is a decision to make a long-term commitment to do life with somebody. That's different than just being a witness for Christ in the workplace around a bunch of heathens who swear and curse. You can do nothing about that. You're supposed to be there. God bless you for being there. They need to see what a Christian looks like. But what he's talking about here is the yoke. Now, there are two ways the Bible talks about a yoke. One has to do with getting a job done. So here's what it says in Deuteronomy chapter 22, verse 10. You shall, not plow a, a, with, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. Don't yoke two different animals together. Why? One goes at a different speed. One stops for the grass. One moves forward. You'll get nothing done. Does this apply to marriage? Absolutely. Do not yoke up. That's a long, is, is marriage a long-term commitment to do something together? Yeah. Don't be marrying an unbeliever. Young people, please. Single people, please. I, I beg you. I beg you. You know I get serious about this every time I get to this topic. I beg you. Pick another sin. Like, I don't know how else to like, communicate this. Pick another sin than the sin of marrying a non-believer. If you're already married, too late for you. You gotta, stay, you gotta stay the course. By God's grace, you can. But for those of you who are looking, check the faith record. Do they love Jesus? Do they show up to church? Do they not just show up to church? Do they love the Lord? Because your life will depend on it. I'm telling you, you're not, I, when you're 20, you don't see five feet in front of you. I mean, I know. Why do I get so passionate about this? And I am married to a believer. Thank you, Jesus, for my believing wife. It is it's hard enough with a believing wife. I can't imagine. Hard for her. 
Don't tell her I said that. I can't imagine what it's like with a non-believing one. But I have seen it. I've seen believers marry non-believers. And I've seen not just the personal frustration, but the confusion in the children and the grandchildren. And it kind of goes like this. Frustration in the first generation, believer, non-believer. Confusion in the second generation. Darkness in the third generation. Watch out for that. Don't yoke up with people. So some people got to keep your donkey meter up. All right? Or, or according to the King James Version of the same verse, thou shalt not plow with an ox and an ass together. <laughs> keep an eye out for the asses in your life. <laughs> the second way, <laughs> King James said it, I didn't say it. Uh, <laughs> the second way the Bible talks about yoke is teaching, doctrine. And here's what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11. Look at it with me. Matthew 11:28. 28. Come to me, Jesus, says, all you who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. And what's the next word? Learn from me. So the, the rabbis in Jesus' day referred to yokes as the doctrine of a particular rabbi. My question to you is, don't answer out loud. Whose yoke are you putting on your neck? And by that I mean, who's your rabbi? Now, I'm sure many of you think it's Jesus. But if it's Jesus, are you listening to him? Are you spending time hearing what he has to say? Are you getting into those red letters in the New Testament and saying, okay, what, is my, what does my rabbi say about this? What is G I know this is what Hollywood says, but what does Jesus say? I know this is what my boss says. I know this is what my neighbor says. I know this is what my, my friends say, but what does Jesus say? Because he promised me that his yoke, verse 30 of Matthew 11, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. I can either choose the doctrine of the world, which will weigh me down and burden me up and wear me out, or I can choose the yoke of the one who gave his life for me. That's a light load. That's a right load. Here's what it says in Proverbs 22, verse 10. Get rid of the one who makes fun of wisdom. Get rid of them. Doesn't sound very Christian. Okay, it's biblical. <laughs> Get rid of the one who makes fun of your faith. Uh, again, if you're not married to them. Nothing you can do. I'm sorry. If the unbeliever will stay, you must stay. But um, the, the friend, the boyfriend, the girlfriend, get them out of your life if they don't listen to God. I'm trying to help you because some of you think that if you just pray for peace, it'll happen. No. Pray for it. But pray for God to give you the strength to be a peacemaker. And sometimes being a peacemaker asks you, demands you to make some war to get to peace. Neville, some of you are Neville Chamberlains. Oh, it's okay. Hitler's okay. He's all right. He's a good guy at heart. He's all right. Hitler's fine. Don't worry about him. Let's just worry about ourselves. Neville Chamberlain Christians. You play with the world. 
You think there's nobody that's really that bad. Yes, there are. You need some Winston Churchill up in your spirit. And say, we are not going to surrender. We are not going to let this guy run us off the continent. We're going to fight, and we're never going to give up, and we're going to get this guy where he belongs, in the pit of hell. We need some Winston Churchill faith in a generation that's challenging Christians to compromise and lay down what we believe is right to be accepted by the culture. No, 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 no. We will be what our rabbi wants us to be. I'm preaching today. I don't know. First service, you... Last night, they didn't get this last night. You're blessed today. I don't know. I just feel God wanting to say some things to you for your peace. Third relational peace key, immerse my life into the gathering of God's people. And the word immerse is intentional because think about immersion. It means sink yourself in. There's a reason why we call it Waters Church. Because we don't want you hanging out on the shore. We want you jumping in the deep end of the waters. So Paul defines this. He says, listen, you are the temple of the living God, verse 16. God says, I will make my dwelling among, what's that four-letter word after among? Them, plural. Where do you feel the dwelling of God? Where do you feel the presence of God? With the plural body of Christ. So it can't just be you and Jesus. You and Jesus and your hill song <laughs> and your Christian music and your podcast. I just do. I go to church once in a while and most of the time I just mean Jesus. No, it's not. Jesus had a community. The New Testament was a community. They gathered in each other's homes constantly. You need a community. When I meet people at our church, two questions I ask. The first question, what's your name? And everybody who comes here regularly, I've said this many times, what's the second question? Are you in a small group? Yeah, you know. Why? Because you need community. You need to be engaged in the life of the church because where God dwells is in the them. Them. I will be their God, they shall be my people. Therefore, go out from their midst, be separate from the world, There says the Lord, touch no unclean thing. Then I will welcome you. And I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me. Some of the most peace-filled moments of my life was growing up in a home with a great father who provided for us, cared for us, made a warm house for us, and I would sit next to the fire anticipating Christmas. I remember those days. They were beautiful. Oh, the peace that I experienced because of the provision of my Father. Some of you didn't have that in life. Can I tell you? You can have that in the church. You sink yourself into the church. The Holy Spirit is the fire. He brings warmth to you through those relationships. And your Father rejoices over you with his love.